I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. mind. Hello, this is To the Republic with Jake and Jeff, a show dedicated to exploring civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. Welcome to our first episode. With our first episode, we wanted to start off by introducing ourselves and a little bit about who we are. Um, Jake, would you like to kind of give the listeners an introduction to yourself? Yeah, so my name is Jake Jokum. I grew up in Vancouver, um, graduated from Hudson's Bay High School in 2009, um, kind of floated around college for a bit and finally graduated from WC Vancouver with my degree in history this year in 2018. Um, I've always had a, a love for history and U.S. government and politics, and that's kind of showed up through our podcast that Jeff and I created together that's kind of steered us towards a ra- love for radio and wanting to share kind of a message. Um, that's where we kind of got started with when radio. Um, Jeff, I know um, you also got your degree in history. Do you want to tell a little bit about that? Yeah. So I grew up in Portland. Um, I, I'm a high school dropout, but I found my passion and my love for education and history by going back to school and getting my degree also in history, um, graduating this year with you, um, class of 2018. And yeah, one thing I'd like to touch on is I've always kind of been an auditory learner. Um, I've always enjoyed listening to books, um, listening to radio, listening to podcasts. Um, And like you said, we started our own podcast, which kind of led to us wanting to explore more avenues um, to learn and grow. Um, So we started this show to do so. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be a great opportunity. Um, I think we're definitely looking to learn and help the audience learn as we kind of navigate through this, you know, the civics of the U.S. government and the history and, and how these different processes um, have formed throughout time in our, in, our, in our nation's history. Yeah, I think that gets us into the idea of identifying our goals and direction for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, we had talked about what we wanted to do for with this show was we wanted to take an analytical look at the historical background of our institutions and policies that have shaped um, who we are, but also who we are as a nation in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like how did we get here? Right, I think exactly. that's kind of how we want to take an analy- analytical look of how we got to where we are right now. Exactly. I like yeah. that. Um, we thought it'd be a good idea if each episode, we took a very specific look at an institution or a process like such as immigration that needs a further explanation um look a look historically at how that institution or that process has has transformed over time in our in our in our nation's history and um as we said throughout our intro to kind of understand where things are going from here and uh this week we're going to look at immigration because i think it's very topical with what is going on at this you know at the southern border and what are some of the causes and consequences of this current situation that we're in exactly another thing that we wanted to look at was inclusion and exclusion both institutionally and socially and then we're going to switch gears and i think take a very in-depth look at the application process to become a u.s citizen because i think there's a lot of misconception out there and i think looking at that very analytically and diving deep into it will allow the audience and us to kind of get a better feel for the very convoluted and um, lengthy process that it takes to actually become a U.S. citizen. And 
in our present time. Right. I think that's one thing that kind of people just assume or overlook is is it's as simple or as easy as just standing in a line to get into the United States. Yeah, we we hear this we hear this cliche often and uh, I think it's always something that's kind of hasn't quite sat well, but I think it's also something that you hear so much, it kind of gets ingrained in your mind that there is just a line that someone can get into. And if they just got into the line, they become a U.S. citizen. Well, what we've found with our research is that that's not quite the case. So I think we're going to, uh, so just to kind of recap, we're going to start looking at the, with the history of U.S. immigration, focusing on uh, push and pull factors and then exclusionary um, processes, and then looking at the application process as it stands today. Perfect. So what I think we should start with is uh, the history of U.S. immigration and what, as you mentioned, the push and pull factors were or what forced people to come to the United States or to leave their home countries. Yeah, and I think the first one we're going to look at would be religious and political freedom. I think there's there's because of the the rights that are afforded to U.S. citizens, um, even before the U.S. was a country, it was always seen as a land where people could come and congregate and practice and live it the way that they wanted, and that's always been a very driving and motivation, very motivational factor for um, people coming from other countries. Uh, the second one, I think, is the largest, probably the largest one, um, is economic opportunity. Uh, the United States, gone having gone through multiple industrial revolutions, has been uh, very advantageous for those who are living in very marginalized situations in their home countries, being able to come to the United States and sometimes finding up economic opportunity. And then as we'll show, um, some didn't, so we can, um, we can look through and analyze that. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, you know, the three things that we do have before I get into the third is that these three push and pull factors, well, the first two specifically, mm-hmm. not the third one. Yeah. Thank God. Well, I'll get there. <laughs> but the first two, historically and even today are still push and pull factors that drive people to come to the United States. Yes. So the third one um, that I I don't think we can talk about migration or immigration or mass movements of people coming to the United States without mentioning um, slavery and um, just slavery as an institution and just bringing people here against their will. There were no push and pull factors for those individuals. They were just forced to come here. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that and bring that up because I think that is something that needs to be addressed before we get into the other two religious and political freedom and economic opportunity. So with the first push and pull factor, uh, looking at religious and political freedom and how that has uh, transpired um, in the United, in U.S. history, it was even before... Um, the uh, bef- before the United States was a, was a was even a colony, you had uh, the Puritans who were escaping uh, religious oppression in England, looking for a religious opportunity. It's something we all learn in, in elementary school with, right. the, with the Pilgrims and right. and, uh, and the Native Americans. And um, doesn't quite go the way that we're told, but you know that was that was a, a, a population leaving its its home country, looking for an opportunity somewhere mm-hmm, else, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think over time you you see different religious groups, whether they're um, whether it's uh, you know Puritans uh, during the Reformation, or you have um, Jewish um, migrants in the World War II era and Chinese immigrants during the early 1800s, and then now now um, you know Muslims try, Muslim immigrants leaving uh, a war torn Middle East looking for asylum in the United States. I think over throughout our history, the United States maybe not has always been very accepting but has always been a destination right. for many who are are looking for that that 
key tenet to that's uh, a principle of our democracy, which is you know religious and political freedom. That's something that we we say we we hold dear as a as a founding principle, um, and it's brought a lot of people to to our shores. Exactly. Uh, the second one uh, is economic opportunity, and that kind of goes hand in hand around the same timeline as religious and political freedom. And that is, you see, the the very first British colony uh, at Jamestown was an economic outpost. It was the Crown's attempt to create a foothold in the Americas, but what that ended up doing was was once the the colony took off after about a decade and a half of of uh, failure, was it created a massive amount of settlement opportunities for for people who were indentured servants to come over and also land prospectors, uh, business owners, people looking to make it rich in the new world, coming over and making creating settlements. And over time, that they formed their own identity and their own society and and the economic prosperity that they were searching for when they moved when they came here. So both the Puritans and the Jamestown colonists and the the subsequent settlements that are, that came out of those two places, mm-hmm. uh, both in Massachusetts and in the um, you know Maryland Delaware area, mm-hmm. and started to slowly spread over time. We have a slow trickle of of. Uh, political dissonance, religious dissonance, and economic opportunists kind of coming over from Western Europe throughout the, the next century and a half. But really the first major population spike happened in the early 1820s uh, during the first industrial revolution in the United States. Right. With Jackson's infrastructure policies created a much better economic uh, situation because uh with the creation of railroads canals and just better roads Mm -hmm. allowed for raw material in the rural areas to reach the population centers which with an excess of raw materials and food and food supply allowed for higher amounts of specialization to occur within the population centers so what this did was spur technological innovation which created much more need for uh, low skill labor which was um, which were jobs that were highly sought after of, newly, of immigrants coming into into the United States. Right. So you have a big influx of low-skill migrant workers coming into population centers, which were primarily dominated by established English um, migrants who who had come over during the original colonial push mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that were more skilled artisans, but now were being replaced by, by lower-skill migrants um, more assembly line style jobs right. that were being filled by immigrants. Mm-hmm. So the, the the wages were going down for these skilled laborers. And that's where you start to see the real first anti-immigrant schism mm-hmm. between established um, like Americans who are, or had just kind of come out of the revolution, forming the American identity right. and a wave of new Eastern, more Eastern European, Northern European uh, migrants, and you start to see the first real anti-immigrant sentiments is starting to come out of the 1820s and 1830s. That's, that kind of sentiment uh, towards from Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. um, Americans towards German and Irish mm-hmm. immigrants mm-hmm. really started carried through the 1860s with the, with the Irish um, potato famine. And you see big amounts, uh, large amounts of Irish coming into the United States. Right. That also coincided at the same time as the Chinese um, coming uh, coming to fill jobs in the railroad industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, you start to see the Chinese exclusion exclusionary policies. Right. Um, it's interesting right there how it started at first as a religious and political um, freedom push and pull factors. But then as the the new world, if you want to phrase it that way, develops, you see this shift into economic opportunity. And when there was that economic opportunity, you also kind of see the 
the formation of um, informal and formal inclusion and exclusion, which we'll get into later. But I just I just wanted to point out that it's interesting that right there with what you just said, you see the shift into more of an economic opportunity um, push and pull factor in that era. So I think that point is furthered um, mm-hmm. because as economic um, opportunity um, created tension, as mm-hmm. we saw, right. that tension became, um, you, you see throughout U.S. history, especially with immigration, as um, economic opportunities became less, mm-hmm. tensions grew. Right. Well, right. during the westward expansion during the 1800s, you have a pretty big, you have a pretty big break in anti-immigrant sediment, at least um, to the levels that you saw in the 1800s and also in the, into the 1900s as during this time because of westward expansion creating so much economic opportunity that there wasn't, um, there wasn't such competition for, for available jobs. Right. Um, but once the West became settled and you start to see governments and cities pop up in California and the mm-hmm. Oregon and Washington territories um, and the the Chinese especially um, were the targets of a mo- of lot of anti-immigrant sentiment, both socially and institutionally. I think we'll get, in, we'll get into that a little bit yeah. more. Um, but once the Continental Railroad was was finished and that's the, the jobs that they were brought in by the U.S. government to, 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 to do. Right. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of them looked to settle in urban areas in San Francisco and other and other like gold mining towns around around California, Nevada and Utah. But they start once once the jobs started to kind of to dry up a little bit mm-hmm. and what um, in the United States economy takes a little bit of a downturn in the 1870s, you start to see um, a lot more anti-immigrant sentiment pop up that, that kind of manifests in the, ex- in the uh, exclusionary, the Chinese exclusion acts. Mm-hmm. Um, but California, the California provisional government had passed um, their own internal Chinese exclusion policies that limited what kind of jobs Chinese uh, immigrants could work in. Um, and then we can kind of trans we can kind of push forward a little bit to the 1890s, which um, coincided with the U.S.'s second industrial revolution. Uh, the steel and coal industry ex- uh, exploded during this time, which brought in a lot of uh, labor from South and East uh, Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, because these jobs required such uh, low skill and cheap, um, not necessarily low skill, but it was a low skill job. Right. And they need they wanted cheap and easily replaceable labor right and that was mostly filled by immigrants and you mm-hmm. have a big wave of immigrants filling these jobs but what's interesting about this time period is that you have a lot of out migration for the first time you see a lot of uh, single males coming to fill these jobs yeah. but not staying only yeah. not staying here permanently coming here working for for a decade you know five to ten years and then um, moving back either because they didn't find the life here or the opportunities that they were really that they were told or they were looking for or because they came with a plan to make money and then return to their home country mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you see cases of, of, of both happening um, which kind of and then you right after the right after that second industrial revolution that carries us through the 1920s um you kind of get into world war ii and that kind of propels us into a different type of immigration definitely of, of, definitely of different populations looking for economic opportunity but for different reasons than what we saw in the 1800s and i think you had a really good topic that you did in school on the Bracero mm-hmm. program and i think that ties in really nicely with this if you wanted to expand on that a little bit yeah so we learned about the Bracero program in one of um the pacific northwest history course and it's it's a topic and it's a subject that i don't think is is taught enough or acknowledged enough um it's definitely something that i got a really interested in um but what it was essentially was it's 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 referred to as the Bracero program, but it's the Mexican Farm Labor Agreement of 1942, 
And I think this topic fits specifically into the economic push and pull factors. Um, during World War II, you had all of the American men leaving to fight um, overseas. Um, and that left a ton of jobs at home empty. So uh, Mexico and the United States came to an agreement to send migrant workers to America to fill the jobs that were now left empty um, because of everyone going to fight the war. And a lot of those jobs were in the farm labor industry. Um, I think, you know, just a quick overview. You had terrible working conditions. They were treated kind of like animals. Um, but what I what I found in my research, what it did was it kind of reinforced this idea or notion that the United States was a land of opportunity. And it was a place for kind of like you had mentioned, you know, you had migrants coming to work and then going home. Mm -hmm. What this established was kind of the practice of coming to work in the United States and sending money home. You did have some uh, migrant workers come and then go home, but it was mostly just sending the money home. So it, it really emphasized that economic opportunity aspect of immigration and migration um and 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 this was a um just to clarify is that this was a um an agreement that in contracts basically that the united states government would go to mexico and find men uh who were willing to come and work in the united states exactly they would go to to farm towns within mexico and kind of hold these these hearings or these events where they would you know tell everybody you know bring everybody you know who who is looking for work and then they would then sign contracts from different different farms or through the government to bring people to the United States to work within this industry. And the reason why it was called the Bracero program because in in uh, Spanish Bracero right. means strong arms. Right. So they would go there specifically to target men with strong arms right. to recruit Definitely. to come and work in these in these available jobs. I think um, what ends up being unfortunate is when the men re when white men returned home right. from fighting in the war, what happened to these Mexican laborers? Exactly. And, I, and I think that's where you start to see the mar further marginalization. Yes. Um, and, but I think it also kind of sets the precursor because I know with others, with other types of, um, with other types, with other cultures, um, when to, once you were to have a population in an area, mm -hmm. People who are from that home country or from that home area, yes. um, that original area, those they they see a settlement there, and they're much they have much more confidence to mm -hmm. then move. Mm -hmm. So, would you say it, it's fair that the Bracero program, although it was kind of somewhat short lived, may have been laid the groundwork for future Mexican migration to the United States? Oh, definitely, because like you said, there were settlements, and so you like I had mentioned, there were people they were sending money back, but the men stayed. Um, so a lot of the time, an increased migration or immigration from Mexico because families would come to join the men who were already settled within mm -hmm. the United States. Um, but again, like you said, it did. There was growing animosity when men came back from fighting the war because their jobs were taken by immigrants. Yeah. And I think that's where you begin to see kind of the tensions between the two groups. For sure. And especially in, in rural areas where economic opportunities are going to be a lot less. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that's definitely, um, you could definitely see where that kind of, um, tension would come from. Right. And, and, and one thing I want to point out real quick is I think that an important aspect of, of immigration, um, and migration in these different waves, you continuously see the othering of these groups. Mm -hmm. Um, as you mentioned, they're called Braceros because of the strong arm and, I likened in my research and in my papers about the Bracero program how much, how just the similarities between slavery and the slavery 
institution because they would look at these Mexican men and if you didn't look strong enough or you didn't look like you would be good at the job, you just wouldn't get to come. Um, so they were specifically looking for a body type and they kind of ran them through like corrals and they didn't do like the auctioning, but they definitely were just looking for certain types and, and it's just, it's kind of gross if you think about it yeah. and if you look at it that way. Um, it's not entirely shocking though that that was kind of a, a, a practice um, by government recruiters right. when, when trying to find um you know, workers to yeah. come and 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 uh, and fill these fill these uh, these job opportunities mm-hmm. um, because that was very much a part of the eugenics and uh, biological right. racism that that kind of formed in the late 1800s and carried, right. carried through World War II. And, Definitely. Um, so yeah, I mean that that was just a practice that you saw in all sorts of areas. Yeah. Um, the British Empire used it in their colonies, so right. it, it was. Um, and it's interesting because it's also this is also one of the first times that the U.S. economy was dealing with a fluctuation of immigrants that weren't European. Right? They had they had right. there was there was a Chinese, but now you have people who don't look like the white Anglo-Saxon exactly. Exactly. Europeans that were here previously. Mm-hmm. And no, there there was lots of racism towards, um, especially the Irish. Right. But right. this um, now you start to see the real biological racism mm-hmm. start to really kind of creep up mm-hmm. in anti-immigrant sentiment more so than more than just tensions over economics now you also have a racial component right to uh to the anti-immigrant and I, th- and I think that this is the foundation of this modern modern era or modern notions or modern rhetoric and ideas and practice of all of immigrating from the south into the united states but then also kind of the racism you know, that has continued towards or the xenophobia that has kind of been started, I think then has now carried into kind of what we see today. Yeah. I mean, so kind of skipping forward a little bit, I know both of us have looked at NAFTA's effects Mm -hmm. on the Mexican economy. And so you have, um, during, you know, from this point on, you have a, you have a kind of a stream of, of Mexican migrants heading into the United States to, to find job opportunities, mostly in agricultural uh, labor. Um, in the, in the early 1900s, along with more of a push of globalization, mm-hmm. um, the United States, Mexico, and Canada r- agreed to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and kind of at a center point to to this agreement between the three nations mm-hmm. was George H.W. Bush, who did most of the arguing that the bill was passed by Clinton, right. um, but it was argued for by the George H.W. Bush administration in the early 1990s. And one of the underpinning principles of this was to try to modernize Mexico's economy out of its more traditional horticulturalist, small-scale society, ec- small-scale economy, to a more modern economy that would keep Mexican labors in mexico right what that actually did was comp- with the flood of um, with, of united states agricultural products cheaper products flooding mexican markets mm-hmm. undercut the horticulturalists ability to sell at their local markets right which cr- which completely destroyed their way of life forcing them to then try to find jobs in the in the american in the american agricultural industry so what you have was an attempt to remedy at poor economic conditions mm-hmm. or what was perceived as poor economic conditions right. in Mexico um, actually made things much, much worse mm-hmm. and, and kind of created the, it and kind of in a way created what is seen by some in, in U S politics as the problem of immigration today. Right. 
to expand on that, the United States experienced the, its largest um, increase in immigration mm-hmm. in its history between in the early 2000s, mostly framed by U.S. policy, um, as we saw with NAFTA. But then, you know, we can, as we see pretty much throughout the throughout the history, there has been waves of immigration sparked by economic opportunities or other political factors that have then been um, shaped by U.S., subsequently shaped by U.S. policy. Exactly. That's one thing I was thinking about is throughout U.S. history, you have these waves coming and the government constantly trying to form or curb the waves and, and the stream of immigrants and illegal immigration. And I think that, like you just said, you know, some of the some of the times those policies shaped and maybe even promoted more immigration into the country. So on that note, we're going to now look at formal exclusionary processes towards immigration in the United States. You have been listening to To the Republic. I am Jake. And I'm Jeff. And now a word from our sponsors. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Tap Room and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events including wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Tap Room and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow, Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www. S-A-Y hyphen C-I-A-O dot com or directly at 360-210-5522. Welcome back. You are listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. In the last segment, we discussed the history of immigration in the United States. So now we're going to transition into talking about inclusion and exclusion. And I think a a classic... um, piece of institutional exclusion that constantly gets brought up. And we mentioned it in the last segment, which is the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Right. And we can just kind of go, I think, a little bit more deep into the history and the timeline of the Chinese Exclusion Act to uh, fully appreciate um, what this did and kind of the basis that it set going forward in terms of uh, immigrant exclusion in the United States. Well, we found some parallels to some a more modern issue that I think ties nicely with this exclusion act definitely and i yeah. think um i think in order to do that we have to give a little more context for sure so between 1850 and the mid 1870s chinese uh, immigration to the united states especially in the western portion of the of, uh, of the continent increased uh quite a bit as uh, chinese immigrants filled um jobs in the agricultural industry manufacturing industry especially in the industry in the making of uh silk products and other cloth, but then also um, the largest and most known was their role in uh, working on the railroads as they expanded westward. Yeah, and one point I wanted to make real quick is that these were mostly men coming over to do these jobs, to fill these jobs. For the most part, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on top of so on top of that, 
when a lot of these uh, men would come across uh, the Pacific Ocean to uh, look for economic opportunities in uh, in California and other in other Western territories. Uh, they were sending money back to their families, um, but they're also having to pay back China, the Chinese merchants that uh, gave them that provided them the passage to the United States. And that's what that was a very expensive trip. So the, uh, many of the Chinese uh, workers were living in, in, in poverty situations as they were sending most of what they were making back to China to pay off their debts and then to try to um, help their family out economically. Unfortunately, what that did is that it, it forced them to take jobs at pretty much any wage that was possible, mm-hmm. which that created a lot of concern with native born workers because they were willing to take such low wages that that would drive down wages generally. Right. And there are some instances in certain um, in, in certain markets that that did happen. But generally, most of the native born workers who were uh, higher skilled didn't didn't, ex- didn't uh, necessarily experience that. Okay. So the economic tension over wages combined with racial and cultural discrimination led to calls for limiting Chinese immigration and employment opportunities. Mm-hmm. So in the, 19, in the 1870s, the state, uh, the state government of California passed several discriminatory pieces of legislation that forced Chinese business owners and war- uh, workers to apply for special permits and prevented natural naturalization of these Chinese immigrants and limited Chinese immigration to 15 people per boat from China. So it was like a quota yeah. that was placed on on, uh, on Chinese uh, immigrants. Wow. Uh, those Though these uh, state laws were nullified by the federal government because it violated the 1868 uh, Burlingame-Seward Treaty between the U.S. and China, uh, President Hayes was president at the time, and um, and he was the, kind of leading the charge at uh, vetoing these these state bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, under a lot of social pressure, especially from Democrats in the House, Hayes was a Republican. Right. Um, that uh, eventually he and then a lot of calls coming out of the West and wanting to be sympathetic to an expanding area of the mm-hmm. U- of of the U- of the United States, he eventually revised the Burlingame Sewer Treaty to restrict Chinese immigration going forward. That was in the mid eighteen uh, seventies. And in 1882, the federal government uh, pulled out of its treaty with China and passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm-hmm. which suspended the immigration of Chinese um, laborers from for a period of up to ten year of uh, for ten years. Uh, this act was the first in American history to place broad restrictions on immigration. In 1888, Congress passed the Scott Act, which made reentry to the United States after a visit to China impossible, even for longtime legal residents. Yeah. In 1892, Congress renewed the Chinese Exclusion Act for 10 more years. Um, in the decade, um, decade proceeding, uh, the Geary Act, which extended immigration exclusion to Hawaii and the Philippines, was passed. The same year, US, the U.S. Uh, Congress extended the exclusion of Chinese indefinitely and would not see the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act until 1943, as the U.S. needed to reach a ally, um, needed to reach an agreement with China over um, its allied ship uh, during World War II. So I was just thinking about this, Jake, and I don't know if this is just like naive or just me being kind of silly, but I just, I never thought of it like this. Um, so you're talking about these immigrants coming over the Pacific mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I'm start, I started thinking, um, I guess for the last, you know, decade of learning about Chinese immigration, I had always assumed that they were coming from the East. 
Oh. <laughs> because expansion has always come from the East. Yeah. So I just, I, I don't know why, I just always assumed like, oh yeah, they were coming with those waves of migration. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an inter- interesting point that you're, you know, that we clarify that they were coming over the Pacific. And, yeah. And it's, it's not that I didn't know that, but it, it's just a realization I was having. Yeah, it, it, it makes it kind of more global, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Instead of going through the United States to come west for these mm-hmm. jobs, they're coming f- directly from China yeah. into the United States to settle down and, and have jobs and, and earn wages. What I think it does is it, it kind of um, gets us out of that uh, Eurocentric frame of mind right. and seeing it more over more of a, like a global yeah. pattern of immigration. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think it's actually I don't I wouldn't say that it, that's naive by any means. <laughs> yeah, I would say that that's probably wh- how almost we're kind of conditioned. Right. To think. Absolutely. Yeah. Another thing um, that I was thinking about when you were talking about all that is, you know, you had mentioned that these these Chinese men were sending money back home, mm-hmm. um, and that they were men mostly, primarily coming to the United States. And we kind of touched a little bit on that when we discussed um, the Bracero program. Yes. So it's just interesting these parallels throughout history of just these continuing practices by these immigrant groups. Um, But we also are seeing some parallels that we're going to go into next about how these immigrants were received historically, which we kind of saw and touched on a little bit with Chinese Exclusion Act, but also today how they're received um, with immigrants. Yeah. So on that note... um as we saw with the Chinese Exclusion Act, most of this was brought up. A lot of the tension that was that existed between immigrants and native-born uh, Americans was uh, the tension over economic opportunity. Like when they they saw that immigrants coming in taking jobs was a threat to their own economic security, right. and also, but and by extension, a um, and a threat to their status as as Americans and oh, with, within the, within the economic ladder. Yeah. And so you see that in the 1870s. That's also paralleled now in the uh, in the debates we see about uh, DACA and other mm-hmm, uh, immigrant mm-hmm. programs that have been enacted in the last decade or so. And some of the um, arguments against those particular um, those particular programs. Right. So uh, we'll just get into DACA really quick. Um, DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it allows for individuals who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children to receive a renewable two-year period of deferred action from deportation and to be eligible for a work permit. Uh, DACA, however, does not provide a path to citizenship. Um, DACA was implemented in 2012 by the Obama administration as an executive order. Um, and he used the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services as the bureaucracy to implement this program, mm-hmm. and then f- it was then funded by um, by an act of Congress through the budgetary project right. process. Um, kind of a, an important timeline, though, in the post Obama uh, pre- post Obama presidency was in June sixteenth, two thousand seventeen. Um, just before, actually, just to go back really quick, the Trump administration, as, as part of his platform, even running, was to repeal DACA. He uh, he mentioned DACA quite a bit through the campaign process. Right. And upon taking office, he said he would repeal DACA on day one. Well, it still technically hasn't been repealed yet because a lot of time, a lot of the repeal process has been um, held up in court. 
Um, so, but back to the timeline, um, June 16th, 2017, the Department of Homeland Security announced that it intended to repeal the executive order by the pres- by President Obama that expanded DACA uh, to more immigrant demographics. And that, from my understanding, that has happened. The, the, expanded, the expansion of DACA has been repealed, but DACA, it re- as it relates to the children mm-hmm. that originally covered, like mm-hmm. many of the dreamers, um, is still around today. Okay. Um, and uh, so then, f- and then further on in 2017, on September 5th, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that the DACA program was repealed, stating that the DACA eligible individuals were lawbreakers who adversely impacted the wages and employment of native-born Americans. Mm-hmm. So here again, we see um, this further claims that immigrants yeah. are coming in, taking our jobs. Right. So I have a list here of kind of myths that are um, attributed to uh, DACA and recipients and dreamers interesting um one thing i think you have in your notes that we'll get to is that it's a pathway to citizenship yeah which is not right um and the myth that they don't pay taxes um if they're working and they're living in our society they're paying taxes exactly another myth is that uh they receive medicaid or aid from the affordable care act um some types of immigrants living in the United States have health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, but under DACA, dreamers are not eligible. Okay. Um, and then there's a myth that they are going to college for free. You and I have talked about that on our podcast, Say What You Mean. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not true. No, it's, it's, it's not. <laughs> um, and then to further your point, the final um, kind of myth that I have here that kind of encompasses everything is that they're stealing our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, Washington Post fact checkers found that only a few economists believe DACA adversely affects native born workers. Right. Also, that there was little that there was minimal evidence that DACA caused the surge in unaccompanied minors and completely and found completely false that all top legal experts believe that DACA to be unconstitutional, mm-hmm. which both Jeff Sessions and President Trump have asserted. Right. That it DACA has increased. Um, unaccompanied children mm-hmm. looking for using DACA as basically an anchor to right. the United States right. in that um, they believe then in that legal scholars believe that it's, it was an unconstitutional um, process mm-hmm. with which DACA was implemented. Right. Um, so that's, that has been their, uh, they're, u- they're using the sentiment of their take word. They're taking our jobs right. to then um, push for the removal of this inclusionary program mm-hmm. for immigrants. Exactly. In this segment, we paralleled the arguments that led to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act with the attempts to remove the DACA program in 2017. We are going to take a quick break. In the next segment, Jeff and I are going to take a look at the U.S. naturalization process. You have been listening to To the Republic. I am Jake. And I'm Jeff. And now a word from our sponsors. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support of founding sponsor Adco Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. Adco features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print anything, mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. The mission of Right to Be Heard, soon to be known as Be Heard, is to build a more informed, engaged, and empowered civic community in Southwest Washington. Be Heard hosts online candidate forums and town hall meetings so citizens can make informed decisions. Be Heard publishes a central calendar that is a one-stop shop of all that's going on in Clark County politics. Information that promotes dialogue and active involvement in local events contributes to a healthy community. More information available at righttobeheard.org. That's R-I-G-H-T 
the number two, the letter B, heard.org. Hello, you're listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. Last segment, we were discussing inclusionary and exclusionary policies um, towards immigration uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to pivot towards looking at a kind of taking a, a look at the nationalization process, becoming a U.S. citizen. And I think to, to preface this, we're going to start by looking at a few of the questions on the U.S. naturalization test. I'm kind of excited for this because I actually know somebody who I think a year or two ago took this test and became a U.S. citizen. Oh, yeah? And just the the pride in her for passing this test. Um, and looking over some of these questions, there are some that I would be hard-pressed to, to, to pass on. There's some difficult questions. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so do you, uh, we're just going to run through them um, and kind of discuss the ones that we feel need uh, elaboration, I guess. Sure. There's a hundred questions on this test. So this is not a short, a short exam by any means. Oh my gosh. I did not realize it was this long. Yeah, it's long. <laughs> uh, real quick. I'm going to jump to question 99. Um, it's, it's under the section of holidays. And I, I just think that that's an interesting subject that, that they have on there. When do we celebrate independence day? Um, 4th of July, July the 4th. Fourth of July. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then name two national U.S. holidays. I think that's so interesting that that's a, the requirement for one of these questions. I mean, you, you have all these national holidays and you have to just kind of pick two. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. And if, yeah, they've got, what, about 10 of them listed here? Right. So New Year's Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, President's Day, Memorial Day, and then Independence Day is on there. Um, Labor Day, Columbus Day, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm so intrigued by that. Yeah. Um, actually, now looking at this, Jake, let's let's move backwards on this test because the first section is principles of American democracy. Um, what is the supreme law of the land, Jake? Uh, the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. What does the Constitution do? It sets up the government. Um, it defines the government and protects basic rights of America and, yes, sets up the government. Um, and I think I, I like that, but I just think that some of these other ones are a little more obscure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that that's interesting when analyzing what is required for this naturalization. Test. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they also, they uh, this these last few sections is called integrated civics. Oh, so interesting. So kind of uh, lines up with with our show a little bit. Right. All right, let's start there. Okay, so um, name one U.S. territory. I wonder if that if that's something most people even think about that we actually have territories. Still. Right, like today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of them being Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. uh, others being U.S. Virgin Islands, mm -hmm. American Samoa, Northern Marianas Island, yep. Mariana Islands, and Guam. Guam, right? Yeah, I think it's something when they when someone says Guam is a U.S. territory, right. we we're like, oh yeah, that's right. But I think. In I think in the in our, in the front of our mind, yeah. it's not something we ever really considered. Yeah, it makes me think about you know immigration of the Chinese coming across from the east. Yeah, <laughs> it's not <laughs> something that's right in the front of your mind for sure. Um, and I this one is super interesting to me. Name one state that borders Canada. I I hmm. just like to 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 question or or ask you know kind of the thought process behind these questions. Yeah, why do you think a question like that is important? About the I, maybe it's just geography, just uh, just making sure that someone has an idea of where America is on the globe. Yeah, because then the next question is name one state that borders Mexico. Mm -hmm. Hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like uh, third grade geography questions. Right. Which, I mean, it, I, I understand that they want people to know that information. I just, the thought process behind these questions, I think is, I don't know. Um, I like this one a lot. Number 87, name one American Indian tribe in the United States. Yeah. That's... Um, a little bit of a recognition there and, and acknowledging, you know, because we know historically maybe the government hasn't yeah. acknowledged those people. For sure. Um, is there anyone that particularly stands out to you? There was one I circled here really quick, and okay. that was, um, uh, when was the, uh, okay, so, okay, here it is. Number 67, the mm-hmm. Federalist Papers supported the passage of the U.S. Constitu- US Constitution. Mm-hmm. Name one of the writers. Right. That would I mean that's that's pretty obscure. Yeah, I don't know how many people could name that. Right, could name the Federalist Papers, mm-hmm. the authors of the Federalist Papers, and that being James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and uh, John Jay. Yeah. So, getting to that question, and and now looking back on that um, American Indian tribe question, and and actually kind of, is this? Oh, okay. This whole question, this whole section, duh, <laughs> is <laughs> dedicated to history. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. Yeah, as two history majors, I kind of enjoy that they have that whole section mm-hmm. there. Yeah, um, it kind of allows us to nerd out a little bit when we're looking through this. But yeah, putting our mind, like trying to put ourselves in the shoes of a person who's trying to gain U.S. citizenship who oh. didn't grow up in our education system, this has got to be super stressful. Right, looking through, the, especially you know that that history section when. We get excited when we read those parts. Yeah. But for somebody coming from another country... Could you imagine the anxiety? No. I, I can't. That sounds... I can't... Like you said, you know, like imagine putting ourselves in their shoes and I, I absolutely cannot. Yeah. It seems like... We we stress over history tests <laughs> right? and that's what we, we decided to specialize in and these people have to know these these answers mm-hmm. and i think we take for granted a lot of these um like what is the supreme law of the land right like we said that's really we, we kind of just chalked it up as right. being easy but to someone who didn't grow up in a democracy or someone right. who didn't grow up in you know in the american system mm-hmm. i mean what is a what is a constitution exactly it's just we have we have this the the fortune of being yes. of growing up in this in this system and i think we take a lot of the knowledge mm-hmm. and the the civics in the processes that it's taken to get to right. where we're at right. for grant for such granted. Oh, so they they have history questions, but they also have like current civics questions. Yeah, like who is you know currently the president of the United States, the vice president, the speaker of the house. Mm-hmm. Then it gets into um, how many years does a U.S. representative serve for? How mm-hmm. many years does a, a senator serve for? How old do you have to be to become a U.S. representative? Questions like that. Um, Ones that I think, unless you were constantly studying this stuff, right. you probably aren't going to remember right. that senators are six years and you have to be thirty years old, and mm-hmm. the U.S. representative is two years and you have to be twenty-five years old. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, you know th- what questions they choose to include and which ones they may have left out. Um, it's a very interesting test. Yeah. I, again, I can't help but think of you know while looking over this. Uh, just how naturally I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, well, yeah. But you and I have chosen, again, to study history and politics and political science. Um, so I just, I need to reiterate, I can't imagine just being someone in another country or only living here for a limited time and and trying to study for this. Yeah, or even taking a rant, like a, a, 
a random sample size of the American populace, right? Right, that were born here. That exactly. Are sitting them down, handing them this test, and saying, "Take this." Right. I'm sure there's a YouTube video of somebody doing that. Yeah. But but to, but to see that in person and to actually have an maybe like a professor in college to, to, to do to do this test to give this test out, I think would be an interesting. Well, I think experiment. it would also be interesting to see the reaction of the people as they're taking the test. In, in them being American citizens yes. and then almost kind of like, oh my gosh, I look how much I don't actually right, know. Right. And it, it would be st- just to see this, the stressful situation that they're in. Yes. And m- maybe that would bring a little bit of humanity. Empathy. T- empathy to yeah, this process. Definitely. So now I think maybe it'd be a good time to, to kind of look at the, the different pathways that people can become naturalized citizens. Yes. So the first, the first one is you have to have had a green card or a permanent resident card for five years mm-hmm. or for at least three years if you are filing as a spouse of a U.S. citizen. Okay. Um, from there, you meet certain eligibility requirements, including being at least 18 years old at the time of filing. Oh, wow. Able to read, write, and speak basic English. Okay. A person of good moral character. Yeah. So you and I talked a little bit about this previously. Um, that... That stipulation is a little interesting because of who determines that or what what is the determination for that? You know, what are the parameters of that? Yeah. And I think that's all going to be decided institutionally. Right. Because immigration is, most of the immigration enforcement and immigration uh, policies mm-hmm. are all executive uh, branch bureaucracies. Right. So it's going to be highly influenced by mm-hmm. the ideology of the president, right. what the president's attorney general, that current the current administration's attorney appointed attorney general mm-hmm, feels mm-hmm. about immigration. Right. So I think uh, that's it's got to be really stressful for immigrants, and why so certain one of them don't want to try to put themselves through this process yeah. if they're here illegally is because there's so much turnover. Yeah. From from administration to administration in terms right. of what's being enforced, what's not being enforced, mm-hmm, what laws mm-hmm. are you know, what laws are on the books, what yeah. ones might be on the books in the future. Yeah. Putting yourself out there in this situation is going to be incredibly stressful. Yeah. Um, and then the the last step is taking the U.S. naturalization test and having a personal interview. Um, so I think what gets the what gets most people is the whole permanent resident card. Mm-hmm. Like that is the lengthiest part of the process, right. In general, and that is where I think the line uh, cliche comes in. Right, standing in line. Standing in line. So there's only three possible ways to get. Well, actually, technically, there's four. There's three ways to get a three main ways to get a permanent residentship mm-hmm. and that's through a work visa. Right. So somebody here in the United States is bringing you in as a skilled laborer for their job. So they okay. sponsor you, uh, they sponsor you as part of the visa program. Okay. You apply for a uh, relative visa. So someone who's a United States citizen, um, is sponsoring you as a as a uh, as a right. family member, right? Right. Um, and then there is the visa lottery, which the State Department selects. I think it's around. I don't. I don't want to say the wrong number, but I think it's around ten thousand people. Okay. Per year mm-hmm. that get drawn randomly who right. have applied for you who have applied for uh, residency mm-hmm. in the United States. They get picked at random, and then they get they get brought in. Right. Um, and then there's asylum ship, which uh, you can you can apply for U.S. asylum ship in accordance with international law, mm-hmm. and the United States recognizes those laws. And if you meet if you meet the necessary requirements for asylum ship, you can be granted uh, temporary um, asylum in the United States. Okay, so that's kind of the fourth way of getting access in the United States. Right. But it's just there is no line, and this exactly. process is taking six months to th- over three years. Right. 
I was wondering, I read an article today, um, actually on the History Channel, um, titled, Most Immigrants Arriving at Ellis Island in 1907 Were Processed Within a Few Hours. So I'm wondering if maybe that historical education kind of reinforces those ideas of a line yeah. and how quickly that process was in the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe people are just assuming that it's the same today, just as quickly. Yeah. I think that probably uh, that's a really good point. I right. hadn't thought of, and that's probably where a lot of the, where that misconception does come from. Mm-hmm. But it's it is much more convoluted today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So to recap this segment, we looked at um, a few of the questions and kind of a broad overview of the U.S. naturalization test, mm-hmm. and then we got into uh, briefly what the very convoluted process of trying to get naturalization in the United States, you know, from trying to get a green card, which takes anywhere from six months to three years. And, um, and then all of the different, you know, taking that exam, um, meeting, uh, moral standards and how those can be set and, um, and manipulated, uh, by different administrations. Right. This is all through the executive branch. So, um, yeah, I think that kind of sums it all up. Do you have anything to add? Um, the only thing I'd like to add is something that you and I have tried to promote through our podcast and just through other things that we've participated in, is that's developing an element of empathy for others, mm-hmm. having an understanding of, of what other people go through, and taking things for granted that we just inherently have in the United States. For sure. We're, we're so fortunate. And one of the things I was thinking about was every two years, we get to go peacefully overthrow the government. We get to assemble to overthrow the government in a peaceful transition of power. Think about how rare that is throughout human society. Right. Where most of the time overthrows of power is ended in in civil wars Mm -hmm. and revolutions that Mm -hmm. have been in massive amount, just been massively bloody. Right. And we have a system in place that allows for the peaceful transition of power every two years Mm -hmm. and how just how much we should cherish that system of government. Right, exactly. I like that. And how we maintain that is through voting. And I think when this when this episode airs, it'll be after the election. But I just hope and want to keep pressing that voting gives us all a voice. And we hope that this show furthers that understanding. Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, this definitely has been fun. It's been an absolute blast. If you're interested in hearing more of our discussions or learning more about Jake and I, we also have a weekly podcast called Say What You Mean. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, you can also find us on our Say What You Mean podcast social media accounts. And again, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune into our show here on KXRW every month. Thank you very much. I've been Jake. And I've been Jeff. And you've been listening to To The Republic. The federal government has released a plan to drill for oil off the Washington and Oregon coast which would threaten our coastal jobs, wildlife, and communities. Oceana is hosting a rally to protect our coast at 11 a.m. on Saturday, November 17th at Esther Short Park in downtown Vancouver to highlight this issue and what it could mean for the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at tinyurl.com backslash Oceana Rally. That's tinyurl.com backslash Oceana Rally. Thank you to CBD American Shaman for supporting our radio community. CBD American Shaman are dedicated to bringing wellness through ultra-concentrated, terpene-rich CBD. The oil is derived from all-natural, 100% organic, gluten-free, non-GMO, 0% THC industrial hemp. 
CBD American Shaman is located in Vancouver at 2700 Northeast Andreessen Road, Suite A5. For more information, call 866-GOT-PAIN. That's 866-GOT-PAIN. 866-GOT-PAIN. 